Welcome to the Health Leaders Podcast, the place for peer-sourced and solution-focused insights for healthcare executives, airing every Tuesday. I'm Melanie Blackman, the Strategy Editor for Health Leaders. My guest for today's episode is Dr. Megan Walsh, the Chief Academic Officer for Hennepin Healthcare, a Level 1 trauma center in downtown Minneapolis. During today's conversation, we talk about the tough topic of gun violence and how the healthcare sector should be addressing gun violence as a public health crisis. Megan also shares leadership insights and the importance of community, whether it is the community of students, the community of the workforce, or the community at large, and how important it is to keep everyone safe. So without further ado, please enjoy our conversation. Thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And I appreciate you taking the time, you know, to speak on tough subjects such as the gun violence epidemic. But before we broach that tough topic, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your experience serving as Chief Academic Officer for Hennepin Healthcare over the past 11 years, and just about your over 20-year tenure with the health system. Sure, no problem. So I arrived at Hennepin as an intern in 2001, and I got into medicine through a fairly divergent path. And in a lot of ways, the journey I took into healthcare and into Hennepin really landed me in a place that sort of embodied all these things I loved. So right after college, I was a Peace Corps volunteer and I taught in East Africa. And so teaching was just something I absolutely loved. And I got back from the Peace Corps and I worked in a women's health clinic. And I just loved that I was surrounded by healthcare workers who just believed in what they did and and really saw purpose and impact in their work. And I sort of checked that box and said, you know, I need a job where I feel that purpose as well. And then I traveled to Baltimore and uh, did a master's in public health at Johns Hopkins. And I think... In that part of my journey, I really saw the importance to me on prevention, on systems, on kind of seeing the impact of even small changes as they can affect a whole population. And so I packaged up all those experiences and I came to Hennepin and in so many ways, it carries all those values that I most cherish, a rich teaching environment, a diverse patient population hospital mission that's truly about caring for any and all patients. And I work with people who just love this innovative and challenging environment. So I, as the chief academic officer, am currently the longest serving executive on our executive team. And I don't mean years in practice. I mean years on the executive team. I kind of became part of the C-suite in 2012 and have seen the changing of our CFO and CEO and CMO and COO and all the C's have turned over in the time that I've held this position. And it's both an incredible way to see leaders who lead differently. And also, you know, I'm the one who carries a lot of the historic memory as far as where our system has come from and how we've evolved over time. So that's the the role I have on the C-suite and as the chief academic officer. And really in the past 20 plus years, I've seen this institution 
really challenged and mount amazing solutions and innovations that have benefited our patients and our community tremendously. With your over 20 years working at the health system and seeing all of those changes happen, I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about the gun violence epidemic and what you have seen in the health system. I know AP News reported that in 2021 in Minneapolis, more than 600 people had been treated for gunshot wounds in the city's hospitals. And this is data according to the Minneapolis Police Department. So why is gun violence considered an epidemic? And why should the healthcare sector address gun violence as a public health crisis? Well, firearm injury really is a major public health issue. And frankly, we should think about it like we think about cancer or heart disease. You know, when you think about a public health crisis or any sort of issue, think about what particular disease leads to premature death. And firearm injury surely does. It also causes long-term physical and emotional disability for patients, for their families, for their communities, and really for the medical team who takes care of patients who suffered violence in their homes. There's also significant direct emergency and medical expenses and bigger overarching economic cost to society. And so I think it falls perfectly within the public health crisis definition and really rises to the top as far as things we have to think really carefully about leveraging the same measures we use in all of these other system-wide diseases and crises. How has the gun violence epidemic affected the Hennepin healthcare workforce and students? And what have you experienced during your time with the health system? You know, I work at Hennepin because I love this community. We see the impact of gun violence impacting our patients now more than ever. The highest increases in firearm homicide rates are seen among young black males and people living in high poverty areas. These groups already bore an unequal burden of firearm homicide compared to white wealthy Americans, but in 2020 it got even worse. So firearm violence is inextricably tied to race and inequity, poverty and poor housing, limited access to healthy food and educational opportunities and also a lack of safe places to work and live, play, walk, and socialize. And Hennepin, as this city hospital in the heart of Minneapolis, really is surrounded by a lot of these inequities and disparities in our community. I know that our emergency medicine doctors and our trauma surgeons feel moral distress over our current reality. I mean, our trauma season is just heating up here in Hennepin, and it is really challenging. Summers are challenging due to the violence in our collective communities. Our frontline workers, our docs who are in those spaces, really face this head on. You know, we've done a lot to try to mitigate the impact of these challenges internally, for instance. We've done more and more with psychological first aid for care teams, and that includes doctors and nurses and social workers and chaplains and the whole care team that is impacted by patients who are suffering such grave harm and impact. 
Uh, we debriefed these cases as a team in real time. You know, that didn't happen back when I was a resident. In 2001, we didn't have a psychological first aid, a crisis team that came in and helped us talk through what just happened or what we just saw. And I think that's so important for resilience, for teaming, for the ability to come back to work the next day. We have more mental health resources for all of our employees here at Hennepin and especially our faculty physicians and our residents and our students. In fact, most recently in the last two years, and really COVID kind of started this off for us, we've built a system where every new intern, so I have 100 new interns that arrived at Hennepin two weeks ago to start the next phase of their medical training. All 100 are set up with a therapy visit as a baseline, and they can choose to opt out and say, I don't really want to see a therapist now. But the idea is, if we can normalize mental health support, if we can make it easy, if we can help people try it out when they aren't in distress, they'll know how to get help when they are. And I think all of this is part of the bigger circle of prevention and support and partnering with our healthcare teams, our community, all in service to trying to decrease the impact that gun violence has on everyone. Oh, it seems like Hennepin Healthcare is really taking a lot of great steps to address such a horrible topic. And in early June, your CEO, Jennifer DeCubelis, joined other Minnesota health system CEOs in penning a statement to formally declare that gun violence is a public health crisis. You talked a little bit about how the health system is preparing its workforce and students. What other steps have you taken to prepare for any gun-related violence at your hospital? Well, we have a lot of different strategies that have been employed. For instance, all 7,000 of our employees receive active shooter training. This is another example. I mean, this wasn't something that we had uh, back when I was in training. This has been in the last five years. You know, my, my kids get active shooter training in their elementary schools and our employees get active shooter training in our health system. We have this amazing security team. They're truly phenomenal and they are performing constant risk assessment in our clinics, in our hospital, in our hallways. And they partner with our county sheriff's office and collaborate very closely. But the coolest part about our security team is they're also valuable members of our care teams. So they're part of orientation. They come into the room and team with doctors and nurses for de-escalation of patients who are ill and are at risk of harming themselves or others. And we see them more as care providers than we do as security, if you will. You know, as the chief academic officer, I also have a role in preparing for gun-related violence here at Hennepin. For over six years, we have utilized our simulation center to provide de-escalation simulation training for every new resident that comes to Hennepin. And we've done this for over six years. In fact, just yesterday, I finished training all 100 of our new interns. They learn verbal de-escalation. They understand risk assessment and how to escalate concerns. We debrief about how hard this is and what to do and who to call for help. We build teaming, we collaborate, and that is how we can build a community that takes care of one another and also helps to prevent these as much as we can from happening here at Hennepin. 
and you know, there are also structural changes and in so many ways, this is parallel to my public health training. There are also systems changes you make, you know, like every other hospital, probably in the world, COVID forced us to decrease access into our hospitals for infection prevention reasons. And so we have continued to really streamline access for visitors, for patients, for, you know, other workers, contracted uh, folks, et cetera, who come in and out of this organization and route them through a few portals of entry so that we can better ensure the safety of our employees here. And what is the health system doing to help address gun safety and gun violence in the community? Well, one thing that I love is we have an amazing hospital-based violence prevention program called Next Step, and it essentially connects survivors of violent injury with services, hoping to disrupt the cycle of violence. The program has enrolled more and more patients into its program in the last few years, and it truly practices through a trauma-informed approach. But I probably should also answer this as a teacher. I've already told you we train residents and medical students here at Hennepin and continue to educate our faculty as times are changing. All in all, we train over 300 residents and fellows here at Hennepin and over 40 specialties. Uh, We have over 300 medical students that come through. And so we have a critical role to plan for gun violence prevention education. And remember, this is tomorrow's healthcare workforce, both in Minnesota and throughout the country. In Minnesota, we don't have red flag laws, so our skill building focuses on trust building with patients and their families. We do have systems, things like gun locks that we offer up both in our peds clinic and our psychiatry clinic that we can give to patients. And these are skills that have to be taught. Residents have to learn how to ask about this stuff. And if risk assessment is performed and a patient is checking any of the boxes for increased risk, they need to know how to intervene, what to do, what actions they can take. You know, another example within our training programs is within the concept of intimate partner violence. It's a huge risk factor. Are we screening regularly all of our populations? The providers in our adult and pediatric gender and sexual health clinic recognize that the lifetime prevalence of intimate partner violence is higher among lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people. And they need to view this just like they're screening for cardiac risk factors or other medical conditions that we routinely look for. And then any teaching hospital is also trying to push the boundaries of research and innovation. Our surgery program really is spearheading a lot of amazing research on gun violence and publishing in the area. How do we better screen? How do we create solutions in tandem with the community? And I think surgeons leading this work is pretty incredible. It really sounds like proactivity is key to all of this. And it sounds like Hennepin Healthcare is really walking the talk when it comes to being proactive in addressing these things. You know, I think our role as a level one trauma center, as a safety net, we've been all of these things and a teaching hospital since the late 1800s. So we have honed in on this space that we really care about and believe in. And there is obviously a lot more we have to learn, but in so many ways, we have been better positioned to 
face this challenge head on because of uh, the work we've done over the last 50 years. And hopefully we can continue to lead within the region and the state to kind of learn more and do more as we move forward. What advice do you have for leaders in healthcare that are trying to address this gun violence epidemic? I really think the first step has to be focusing on the safety of your employees. Employees in healthcare, this is a hard job even on its best day. And we are seeing patients in distress on a regular basis. And we do have to take care of our employees just as we would our patients. So do your employees know the safety protocols at your institution if something were to happen? Have they practiced? Do they feel safe? Your employees are also your community. So the light they shed on conditions, on concerns, is likely reflecting what your community's concerns are and will probably help you start to see opportunities for doing more locally. I think that's the first step. The second step in my eyes is really building out a strong system for assessing risk factors, how to assess for these in our patients, you know, adverse childhood events, for instance, and social determinants that raise the risk of experiencing violence across all sectors of the system. How do we systemize this regardless of your specialty, whether you are a patient seeing a dermatologist or a trauma surgeon, is there still an eye to the risk for violence in all of these settings? I think the third step is really the next 20 years in healthcare is that all of our health systems have to learn from the community how to prevent gun violence. The people in these impacted communities possess knowledge and experiences that make them uniquely qualified. They can reimagine safety and remedy the cycles of trauma and violence in their communities better than we can. So how do we shift power and resources to community-led safety practices and policies and violence prevention efforts that go outside of the walls of the hospital that will benefit us all, our community and our health systems in the long run? But collective approaches to improving safety and reducing firearm death would float a lot of boats. And there are a lot of great programs out there. We are a trauma center. We have been in this business for a long time, but a lot of hospitals are really scrambling to figure out how to build this type of lens in their own healthcare system. And there are great programs out there. You do not need to reinvent the wheel. Look at others, find good partners. One site I really love is called the Bullet Points Project. And this is an amazing online resource for clinicians and medical educators, me being a teacher and the chief academic officer. And it's this curated collection of content for firearm injury prevention. And, you know, their kind of mission is that they believe that a well-informed, politically neutral and collaborative approach to firearm injury prevention is the most effective way to save lives. And they have a ton of great resources on that site. And so it's super helpful. You know, during our conversation, I can definitely feel your passion about your work and the health system in the community. What is your favorite thing about working for a teaching hospital as a physician and chief academic officer? Gosh, uh, I mean, I truly have the best job in this health system, no question. You know, I love medicine, but I, I love medicine even more as a teacher. I learn something new every day from my students, and that's pretty amazing. It's really incredible. And how would you define your leadership style, and how does your background in teaching and practicing medicine support that style? 
I really love the principle of fair process as a leader, and I employ it as a teacher and as an executive or a leader in the organization. And kind of the underpinnings of fair process are three key principles. One, engage. So involve individuals and decisions that affect them. And that doesn't necessarily mean they get their way, but listen to the points of view, genuinely seek their opinion and insight as you're looking to make a decision. So first I engage the group and that's just like a teacher. I try to hook the audience to say, why should you care about this topic? The second is explanation, right? Explain the reasoning behind a decision to everyone. And so why? Why am I making this policy change or this next step decision as a leader? And oftentimes leaders forget the why. They forget to really explain with clarity why the decision they made is the decision they made. And I think that often can really decrease a lot of the resistance that can occur with change. As a teacher, I do the same thing. I say, here's how I'd manage this patient with heart failure. Let me tell you why I chose to start this drug. Let me tell you why I think this is heart failure and not a heart attack. And the explanation is really important. And then the last place is expectation clarity. Make sure everybody understands the decision you're making and what's expected of them moving forward. And if you do these three things as a leader, you'll get a lot of support. You can effectively manage the change. And as a teacher, I do the same thing. I then say, we talked about why heart failure is so important to diagnosis. I talked to you about why I chose this treatment plan. And then last, here's what I want to see you do when you see a similar presentation tomorrow. And I describe the actions they should take. And I think those three things are true, whether you're leading or whether you're teaching. And I, I think I try to embody those principles in every decision I make and with nearly all of the teaching points I make as well. Awesome. And then what advice do you have for women and others in healthcare who aspire to serve in the C-suite? I'm still learning. So I don't have advice that's fully formed yet, but I would say to go on a scavenger hunt. And in that, I mean, find a mentor, someone who really sees your career trajectory and helps guide you getting there. Find an ally, and an ally is someone who can align with you in your goal across a particular issue. That ally may disagree with you in other ways, but they truly are on your side in trying to effect change. Find a confidant, and a confidant is someone that will never really leave the role of supporting you, even when you're on opposite sides of an issue. And a network of champions. Find a group of people that believe in you and are there in support of you. And those four roles, a mentor, an ally, a confidant, and a champion, they may not be the same person and often are not the same person. And so build that community around you. Build that team of support. I got this job because I had a male boss who truly believed in me, even when I wasn't sure I could do this job. And he sponsored me and he supported me, but he also championed me publicly to other leaders. And I think it's important to find that for your own journey, but I also think it's important to be that for others who are just starting theirs. Well, Megan, I really appreciate you talking about the importance of community, whether we're talking about, you know, working at a health system and working as a chief academic officer or addressing tough issues such as gun violence. 
thank you so much for sharing your expertise on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. This was fun. And thank you for listening to the Health Leaders Podcast. We'll be back next Tuesday with more healthcare industry insights.